Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. I don't have any comments, and in some ways that's a good thing. We have a lot to cover today. Uh, also, um, you know, you are going to be putting the comments in as soon as we finish the book, and you're going to tell me how great it is and how much you loved uh, the story of Jim. Now, on our last podcast, I finished discussing up through chapter 37 and maybe touched a little bit on part of 38. And I focused on how Marlowe uniquely begins to tell the final days of Jim's story with a letter to a privileged individual. Now, it's unique. It's, it's a unique way to write, and it just shows Conrad's genius. Now, we are on the fast track to complete our discussion of this incredible book, and hopefully we'll be done with the book by the second week in October. So today, I want to continue with chapter 38 and move up through chapters 40, maybe even through 41. Now again, listeners, remember, I'm going to give you just the highlights, and uh, you have to be sure that you read these entire chapters on your own, or you're going to miss some really nice detail. Now, neither Gabe or Deborah could be with me again in the studio today, and however, we do have Parker, who is always so willing to help. He is producing the program today, and it would be far too dangerous for me to tape myself, so we just want to thank Parker. Okay, so let's start with chapter 38, and like I said, I think I gave a little bit of this before, but um, uh, essentially, and I'm not going to read all of this to you, but essentially, Marlowe, again, remember now, this is him writing the letter to this privileged individual, and this privileged individual is privileged because he really loves the story of Jim. And as we go on through this, you're going to find out he shares a lot of the philosophy of life with Marlowe. And essentially, it's just a double Conrad. It's <laughs> basically where we're going to get. So the letter continues, It all begins, as I told you, with a man called Brown, ran the opening sentence of Marlowe's narrative. You who have knocked about the Western Pacific must have heard of him. He was the show ruffian on the Australian coast. Not that he was often to be seen there, but because he always trotted out in the stories of a lawless life a visitor from home is treated to, and the mildest of these stories, which were told from him from Cape York to Eden Bay, were more than enough to hang a man if told in the right place. So, so remember, uh, Conrad himself worked on the Australian coast, so he's probably picking some of the stories that he heard about other uh, characters like Brown, and uh, he's, he's probably, that's where he got the idea for this whole section of the book. But uh, he doesn't have a lot of good things to say about this man, Brown. Um, part of the story said they never failed to let you know, too, that he was supposed to be the son of a baronet from England. So he's, he's again, he's English uh, like Jim. Be as it may, it is certain he had deserted from a home ship in the early gold digging days and a few years became talked about as the terror of this or that group of islands in Polynesia. 
And so, so this guy is, he's really a pirate. I mean, he's, he's corrupt. It says he would kidnap natives. He would strip some lonely while traitor to, to the very pajamas he stood in. And after he had robbed the poor devil, he would likely as not invite him to fight a duel with shotguns on the beach, which would have been fair enough of these, as these things go if the, other man, if the other man hadn't been by that time already half dead with fright. So, so uh, you know, this guy is really corrupt. He said, Brown was a latter-day buccaneer, sorry enough, like his more celebrated prototypes. But what distinguished him from his contemporary brother ruffians like Bully Hayes or the mellifluous Pease or that perfumed, dundreary, whiskered, dandified scoundrel known as Dirty Dick was the arrogant temper of his misdeeds and a vehement scorn of mankind at large and for his and for his victims in particular and so so it, it's it's this guy is really he's really corrupt and he's he's a terrorist and he he loves to just well he loves to kill people and he loves to steal uh, it says uh, <clears throat> he goes on to say in the days of his greatest glory he owned an armed baroque manned by a mixed crew of, of Kanakas and runaway whalers and boasted, I don't know with what truth of being financed on the quiet by a most respectable firm of copra merchants. Now, a copra is a, a coconut kernel from which they make take coconut oil. So, so in other words, was he doing the dirty deeds from this, this company? You know, that's what Marlowe is trying to say that he, he may have, have um, uh, you know, happened. That, that, that may be what he was doing. All right. Now, at the bottom of the page, it goes, it says um, uh, what, what he had done is um, he was really, I guess, ransacking off the islands of the Philippines. And, of course, you know, at that time, the Spanish were in charge of that island. And uh, uh, it says, uh, clearly, he must have shifted the scene of his operations further west because a year later he plays an incredibly audacious but not a very profitable part in the serio-comic business in Manila Bay, in which uh, a peculiar governor and absconding treasurer are the principal figures. Thereafter, he seems to have hung around the Philippines in his rotten schooner, battling with an adverse fortune till at last, running his appointed course, he sails into Jim's history, a blind accomplice of the dark powers. And so, so uh, uh, essentially what... What Marlowe says in his letter is that that Brown uh, was just a uh, he was a pirate in the in the Philippine area, and uh, but he goes on to say the tale of him it goes like this is that uh, it says there that he had a bad you know kind of a rotten schooner. Well, uh, he decides that uh, when the Spanish patrol cutters are trying to capture him to put him in prison. He steals a Spanish scooter off the uh, coast of Mindano, M Mindanao, excuse me. And uh, essentially what he does is he, he uh, takes off with the schooner and he's heading for Madagascar. And then I guess inside the schooner there's this map and he finds this little island, Patterson. And uh, he decides to go to Patterson because no European power is managing that little island. Or so he thinks but there is a great, a great Englishman managing the island. And so, uh, anyway, Brown tries to get away, and uh, the, the reason why he actually goes to Patterson 
is he cannot, the, the, the ship that he stole didn't have many provisions on it. And so the guys uh, that, that have helped him steal the ship are, you know, they're starting to starve and they're thirsty and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, they, they, need, they need goods, they need food. So, so uh, what Marlowe assumes is that, that uh, that's why Brown chose to go to Patterson and uh, but mostly because it wasn't owned by a European power. Now, essentially, that is all that's important in that chapter. And so, so uh, you can imagine what's going to happen now when he gets to, to Patterson and the dark powers. And of course, when Marlowe talks about the dark powers, he's talking about, you know, the, the Raja. He's talking about Cornelius. And he's talking about all the people that want to get Jim. All right. Now, Let's, uh, let's skip ahead now to chapter 39. And uh, uh, essentially what happens is that uh, uh, Brown decides he's going to invade Patterson. And then uh, chapter 39 is really about how uh, the, the island resisted Brown's invasion. I'm just going to read a little bit from page 275 now. It says, All the events of that night have a great importance since they brought about a situation which remained unchanged till Jim's return. Jim had been away in the interior for more than a week, and it was Dane Warris, and remember everybody, that's uh, Doraman's son, who had directed the first repulse. That brave and intelligent youth who knew how to fight after the manner of white men wished to settle the business offhand, but his people were too much for him. He, he had not James, Jim's racial prestige and the reputation of invincible supernatural power. He was not the visible, tangible incarnation of unfailing truth and of unfailing victory. Beloved, trusted, admired as he was, he was still one of them while Jim was one of us. And so, so uh, because Jim is in, in uh, deep inside the island, and again, you know, he's not just working on the, the uh, let's say, the outside, the, the city of Patterson or the village of Patterson, and, uh, you know, the entrance into that, He's working on the whole island. He wants to develop his whole island. And, you know, a couple of programs ago, we talked about how Jim had all these projects for the island. He wanted to put, you know, coffee on the island. He wanted to make it a beautiful island. He wanted to produce fruits. And, uh, you know, and, and if, if you look at it, everybody, that's really what the British Empire wanted to do. They wanted to make society better. They, and Jim really had that Englishman mentality in his blood. And so, you know, he was really, really breaking out and doing, doing those things. And, um, uh, but, but uh, you know, the island was still under a threat. And yet you have to remember that, that Jim was the virtual ruler, but he was ruling it successfully. And uh, notice that uh, uh, Marlowe, he's also writing, he says, moreover, the white man, meaning Jim, was a tower of strength in himself, was invulnerable, while Dane Warris could be killed. And so, so you have to remember back now why that, that would be a real problem for Doraman. He did not want Dane killed because he wanted Dane to be the head of the island eventually. And so, so you can see this really bothered him. So they had this big tribal council on the island and, uh, because they feared for, for Dane uh, Warris's life. And, uh, you know, Dane Morris was like Jim. He was going to keep fighting no matter what. I mean, he didn't. He was going to sacrifice himself if he had to. 
but um, essentially what they did is they they stopped their fighting, which was it, it was it was really a kind of a neat tactic. And essentially what they they did is uh, and and if, when you read the chapter, you'll find out that that Brown was thinking, well, what's going on here? You know, why did they stop fighting? But uh, uh, this tribal council got together, and essentially what they do, they stopped fighting. But under the darkness of night, they were going to set up a blockade so they couldn't leave. They couldn't go back down the river. And they were going to hold them there until Jim got there. And so so that's what they're waiting for. And uh, they wanted Jim to get back and take control. And uh, uh, that what they had decided that anybody that tried to move beyond the blockade, they were just going to shoot. So that's pretty brave for these island people. So. Uh, but, but it's interesting, at the same time that there's this tribal council going on, this is what's in the chapter, there's a conspiracy begins to develop against Jim, and it's being happed, uh, well, it's being hatched by, guess who? Cornelius Brown. And then, of course, then there's Kasem, who is Rajah Lang's confidant. So, so essentially what happens is, is Cornelius acts as an interpreter uh, for Kasem and Kasem opens up negotiations with Brown, and, and and essentially there's a lot of deceit in this whole movement. I mean, think about this: like a, they're like the den of thieves. I mean, all these people are together, and they're all liars. They're all cheats, and uh, so Kasem opens up negotiations with Brown, and he assumes that he has his large ship with many guns, and essentially what. What Raja Along wants to do is he wants to rid the island of Jim. And they, they all want to take this opportunity now. Hey, we got some other criminals in here. We got some. We got this pirate coming in here. Um, you know, uh, let's let's all get together and let's get rid of Jim. And so so, but but they're actually they're double crossing even Brown. <laughs> you know, and so so, um, the. Uh, they don't, Kasim doesn't tell Brown that he's blockaded. Kasim knows he's blockaded, but he doesn't tell him. You know, so, so, so essentially what Brown wants now is, is he's also kind of double-crossing the rest of them. Because what Brown wants to do, this is what Brown is thinking, is he, he believes Jim is hiding something. He believes that Jim is there and as corrupt as he is. And essentially what, what he wants is uh, Brown wants to get Jim back on the island and develop a league with Jim so they can take everyone else out, strip the island bare of what all the wealth is, and get off. And, uh, you know, <laughs> he does not have any idea what Jim is really like. And it's, it's just really, really kind of amazing. All right. Now, so, so Brown... He's, he's going to double-cross Kasem. Kasem is going to double-cross cross Brown. And, uh, you know, uh, anyway, essentially what, uh, what's going on there is that um, uh, Brown is already imprisoned. You know, he didn't get imprisoned by the Filipinos but, or the Spanish in the Philippines, but he does get um, um, imprisoned by the blockade. So, so anyway, he, he, does not, he does not really understand that. All right. So let's go. I think what we can do now is we can, um, uh, you know, move on now to Chapter 40.
Now, chapter 40 is, uh, it, it begins on page 282, if you want to just follow along. And uh, again, this is still the letter. This is still the letter from uh, Marlowe to his privileged individual. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm just going to read you a little bit that, um, that, that uh, Marlowe writes to this, this individual. But, but actually, this chapter 40 really goes into more detail about how Brown plans to plunder Pattison and kill Jim. And so, so we know that there's, this plan is really going on. All right, so on uh, uh, page 282 at the bottom of the page, here's, here's a quote I'm going to read here now. It says, I am sorry that I can't give you this part of the story, which, of course, I have mainly from Brown in Brown's own words. There was in the broken, violent speech of that man unveiling before me his thoughts with the very hand of death upon his throat, an undisguised ruthlessness of purpose, a strange, vengeful attitude toward his own past, and a blind belief in the righteousness of his will against all mankind, something of that feeling which could induce the leader of a horde of wandering cutthroats to call himself proudly the scourge of God. And so, so that's what... That's what, uh, you know, Brown was calling himself, the scourge of God. I mean, here he's just evil, and, uh, you know, he, he, he could really disrupt whole islands. No doubt the natural senseless ferocity, which is the basis of such a character, was exasperated by failure, ill luck, and the recent privations, as well as by the desperate position in which he found himself. But what was the most remarkable of all was this, that while he planned treacherous alliances, had already settled in his own mind the fate of the white man, and intrigued in an overbearing offhand manner with Cassim, one could perceive that what he had really desired almost in spite of himself was to play havoc with that jungle town which had defied him to see it strewn over with corpses and enveloped in flames. So think about the evil in that man's mind. And... Uh, you know, he, he just, you know, they defied him. He was coming in to take over, and they, they fought him back. Well, who wouldn't do that? And so, so uh, you know, there, there's just so many, um, there's just so much arrogance in people. And I think I said the last couple of programs, to me, this book is still somewhat contemporary. I mean, the world, the right now, there's a lot of places in this world are subject to someone like Brown. And it's just getting worse, and uh, you know, you know, even America. We have to understand this. I think is that that uh, you know, what's happening in America. It's it's it really is true that America is under attack by Americans, and of course, uh, Mr. Stephen Flurry talks about that on the Trumpet Daily. Mr. Gerald Flurry writes excellent articles for all of us in the Trumpet to explain that. And uh, it's, 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 it's really comforting to know what's happening, but it's still sad to see it happen. And of course, there is some hope uh, beyond all this, and it is leading to something great. But Marla goes on to say, listening to his pitiless, panting voice, I can imagine how he must have looked at it from the hillock, peopling it with images of murder and re re repine. The part nearest to the creek wore an abandoned aspect, though as a matter of fact, every house concealed a few armed men on alert. Suddenly beyond the stretch of the waste ground, interspersed 
With small patches of low-dense bush, excavations, heaps of rubbish with trodden paths between a man, solitary and looking very small, strolled out into the deserted opening of the street between the shut-up, dark, lifeless buildings at the end. Perhaps one of the inhabitants who fled to the other bank of the river, coming back for some object of domestic use. Evidently, he supposed him quite safe at that distance from the hill on the other side of the creek. A light stockade set up hastily was just around the turn of the street full of his friends. He moved leisurely. Leisurely, Brown saw him and instantly called to his side the Yankee deserter who acted as a sort of second-in-command. This lanky, loose-jawed fellow came forward, wooden-faced, trailing his rifle lazily. When he understood what was wanted from him, a homicidal and conceited smile uncovered his teeth, making two deep folds with his sallow, leathery cheeks. He prided himself on being a dead shot. He dropped on one knee and taking aim from a steady rest, though uh, through the unlopped branches of a felled tree, fired and at once stood up to look. The man far away turned his head to the report, made another step forward, seemed to hesitate, and abruptly got down on his hands and knees. In the silence that fell upon the sharp crack of the rifle, the dead shot, keeping his eyes fixed on the quarry, guessed that this man's health would never be a source of anxiety to his friends any more. The man's limbs were seen to move rapidly under his body and endeavor to run on all fours. In that empty space rose a multitude and a shout of dismay and surprise. The man sank flat, face down, and moved no more. That showed them what we could do, said Brown to me. Point is a guy, they just shot him dead to, to, uh, you know, show the people what they could do. So, so anyway, um, Marlowe goes on to say in his letter that, that Brown is just filled with violence and hate, and he wants to tear the Patterson inhabitants to pieces just because they had the gall to defy him. And so, so if if you uh, you know if if you look at that, and uh, you know we see that happening today, and um, I think we're all going to be um, you know concerned to what's happening to the hundred or so Americans that are now hostages to the Taliban. All right. Also in this chapter, um, uh, in this letter, uh, they uh, Marlowe does talk about Kasim's part in the plot, and. Uh, you know, Kasim wants to destroy Jim because Jim has brought peace to the island. And, you know, they still want to, you know, hurt each other. And, um, you know, so, you know, Brown, his party wants to, you know, uh, you know, put fear into everybody. Kasim wants to get rid of the peace of the island. And essentially what the rest, most of this chapter does uh, to all your listeners out there, it just gives us insight into Brown's wretched character and all the vicious subplots going against Jim. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it comes out in the future chapters, but surely Marlowe, knowing all this and learning all this, he realizes that, uh, you know, Jim was going to have bad fate. <laughs> you know, his, it was going to get big and bad for him at the end. All right. One of the one of the things I think it's really important at is at the end of the chapter, and um, uh, as, you know Brown doesn't know what Jim looks like, and uh, essentially towards the end of this chapter, then then uh, uh, Tuan Jim comes back, uh, 
and um, you know, he, uh, he he's never seen Jim, and when he comes back, the whole island just starts. They're beating drums. They're dancing. They're playing music. You know, it's it's all, um, you know, it's all amazing. Let's go to. We can skip over to chapter forty-one if you can believe it. We're really moving along here. All right, chapter forty-one, just the first paragraph. It says, um, to the very last moment, till the full day came upon them with the spring, the fires on the west bank blazed bright and clear, and then Brown saw in a knot of colored figures motionless between the advanced houses a man in European clothes, in a helmet, all white. That's him. Look, look, Cornelius said excitedly. All Brown's men had sprung up and crowded at his back with lustrous eyes. The group of vivid colors and dark faces with a white figure in the midst were observing the knoll. Brown could see naked arms being raised to shade the eyes and other brown arms pointing. What should he do? He looked around and the forest that faced him on all sides walled the cockpit of an unequal contest. And so so they're showing they're showing Jim what's going on. And uh, you know, he's uh, he they're they're wanting to make sure that he knows that they're in trouble in the island. Um I want to skip down to, to the middle of page 290, and um, this is where uh, Marla reveals in his letter that that uh, he knew that Brown just hated Jim at first sight, just hated him. It says, uh, uh, they met, I should think, not very far from the place, perhaps on the very spot where Jim took the second desperate leap of his life, the leap that landed him into the life of Patterson, into the trust, the love, the confidence of the people. So, so you can see where they're, they're now, you know, they're, they're looking into these, into this area where, you know, Jim first, um, you know, came to. Um, it, it says, uh, they face each other across the creek and with steady eyes tried to understand each other before they opened their lips. Their antagonism must have been expressed in their glances. I know that Brown hated Jim at first sight. Whatever hopes he might have had vanished at once. This was not the man he expected to see. He hated him for this, and in a checked flannel shirt with sleeves cut off at the elbows, gray-bearded with a sun, sunken, sun-blackened face, he cursed in his heart the other's youth and assurance, his clear eyes, and his untroubled bearing. And so, so here's, here's uh, Tuan Jim just standing out. He's dressed in pure white, white helmet, um, you know, he really was the leader, and they, it's almost like, in some ways, they worshipped him, worshipped him like a god. You know, but, but he had really helped the island, and so uh, the only thing that's really sad for Brown is he realizes he's not going to get this guy to to help him ransack the whole island. It says, um, it goes on to says that fellow had got in a long way before him. <laughs> so, so in other words. Jim is already in control, but he's in control for good, for the good of the people. He did not look like a man who would be willing to give anything for assistance. He had all the advantages on his side, possession, security, power. He was on the side of an overwhelming force. He was not hungry and desperate, and he did not seem in the least afraid, and there was something in the very neatness of Jim's clothes, from the wide helmet to the canvas leggings and pipe clay shoes, 
which in Brown's somber, irritated eyes seemed to belong to things he had in the very shaping of his life condemned and flouted. Who are you? asked Jim at last, speaking in his usual voice. My name's Brown, answered the other loudly. Captain Brown, what's yours? And Jim, after a little pause, went on quietly as if he had not heard. So Jim didn't even tell him his name. He said, I'm not messing with this dude. He said, what made you come here? You want to know, said Brown bitterly. It's easy to tell. Hunger and what made you. And so uh, uh, I think I'm going to end the program with that. But uh, Brown Brown suspected that Jim was in Pattison because he was hiding something, and he finds out that's not the case. So that's all the time I have for today's program. Now, over the next several programs, Deborah, Gabe, and I will complete our discussion of Lord Jim. So again, get out your Kleenex. Now, it is rather too late to buy Lord Jim, but if you have not yet read it. It's a great book to read and reread. Now, you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Of course, you can also check your local library. So please, now that we're near the end of the book, write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. Maybe you even have a few questions we could cover. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature one I will be announcing the new series there very soon. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. And so until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.